You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We move from that strong word of assurance back to something that the writer of this letter, this sermon, has been wanting to talk about since the middle of chapter 5. Jesus' work for us. Jesus' relationship to us as our great high priest. And we're going to discover today that for this author, this is something that's best understood by appreciating Jesus' connection to a certain person. A figure found in the pages of the Old Testament. We may not have noticed, but the author of Hebrews has actually brought up this person's name three times already. The third time, in fact, was at the end of chapter 6. There it is from last week, when he ended by saying, he, referring to Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek who? If we were to name the most important people in the Old Testament, it is not likely that Melchizedek's name would be top on our list. And this is for a good reason. Truth be told, if it were not for the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek would probably be little more than an interesting footnote in Bible commentaries. Why should we care about him? Who is this Melchizedek guy to us? Well, as we're about to learn, Melchizedek is something of a mystery. And in an attempt to solve the mystery behind the man, the writer of Hebrews intends to teach us further about the distinctiveness and the superiority of Jesus. With that introduction, let's dive into chapter 7 and see what he has to say. Starting with verse 1, he writes, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and God and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Huh? Right? Huh? Let's talk about the mystery, the mystery man named Melchizedek. Besides what we just read here, everything we know about Melchizedek comes down from only two sources. Genesis chapter 14, a historical reference, and Psalm 110, a prophetic reference. 
And we're going to talk about Genesis 14 first. Melchizedek shows up in the middle of the story of Abraham. And as we were reminded last week, as we dabbled a little bit in Abraham's story, Abraham is the one who God promised and called to be the father of the patriarch, the father or patriarch of a new people, Israel, and through whom the Lord promised to bless all the nations of the world. Abraham's story, you might remember from last week, goes from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 12 is the start of Abraham's journey of faith. In answering this call from God, Abraham leaves behind the house, the country, and the life he has known and travels to a place called Canaan. As Abraham goes, following where the Lord is leading him, we are also told that Abraham took his nephew Lot with him. And after some time in Egypt, in chapter 13 of Genesis, Abraham and Lot split up. They go their separate ways because they have both grown so wealthy that their land can't support their combined livestock. So Lot chooses to go to a place called Sodom while Abraham heads in a different direction, the opposite direction. Well, Sodom and the surrounding cities where Lot ended up were under the rule of a coalition of foreign kings led by the king of Elam, a man named Chandolamor. And very soon, this, these people rebelled against Chandelamor and this confederacy of kings. And so Chandelamor and his allies raid Sodom and plunder the city. They carry off captives, including Abraham's nephew Lot. When Abraham gets word about this, he pursues and overpowers Chandelamor and his forces, defeating them right outside of Damascus. All of this leads to what the writer of Hebrews wants to point to. As Abraham rescues his nephew Lot and the other captives, he also brings back considerable spoils from his victory. And on the way back to the land where he and his people had been setting up tents and gathering and grazing, Abraham is met by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem named Melchizedek. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, who we are told at that time is also a priest of the God Most High, brings out bread and wine and subsequently blesses Abraham. In response, Abraham gives a tenth or a tithe of all the spoils of his victory to Melchizedek, or perhaps we might say through Melchizedek, as an offering of thanksgiving to God for protecting Abraham, for giving him the victory. And then after making a small provision to feed and reward the men who went with him to rescue Lot, Abraham returns the rest of the spoils of his victory, what he took in battle, back to the king of Sodom, the one he took them from. And just like that, Genesis chapter 14, just like that, after his appearance seemingly out of nowhere, this strange figure named Melchizedek disappears from the pages of Genesis just as suddenly, just as mysteriously as he first came on the scene. Melchizedek, in fact, remains completely absent from the biblical story until centuries later as his name is briefly mentioned once again in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, authored by King David, prophetically looks ahead to David's ultimate successor, the promised Messiah of his people, the Savior of all the world. And in this messianic psalm, David celebrates the anticipated Messiah who will judge the nations and reign over all creation. He celebrates that this person, this Messiah, will be, as you see it quoted here, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And nothing more is said about this. This cryptic reference, this passing reference to Melchizedek, when's the last time we heard of this guy? Right? 
This cryptic reference, this passing nod to Melchizedek is thrown out without any further explanation as to what this means. And this only serves to fuel the mystery of Melchizedek all the more. You see, even before his mention here in Psalm 110, Jewish thinkers and scholars were puzzled about Melchizedek. The rabbis meditated, they debated, they wrote much about Melchizedek, perceiving him as a rather problematic figure. You might ask, well, why? What's what's the big deal? Why is he a problematic figure? Well, if you were listening carefully, both to Hebrews and if you heard what I was telling you about Genesis chapter 14, what the author was pointing to, here it is. After all, within Judaism, who was the greatest of all the patriarchs? Who was the patient zero of God's promise to all the nations? You paying attention? Abraham, that is correct. Abraham, the father of Israel. But something happened in Genesis 14 that is very, very alarming. Abraham, the greatest of them all, the conduit of the Lord's blessing to the world, is blessed by someone else. And that someone else is Melchizedek. As the author of Hebrews points out here in verse 7, This clearly indicates even though Abraham had received the promises of God, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Therefore, the rabbis wrestled with the issue of who is this Melchizedek guy? And Melchizedek's name popping up later in Psalm 110 of all places only added to the confusion. With Psalm 110, now the rabbis had to wrestle with how this inexplicable figure named Melchizedek related to the coming Messiah. And the head-scratching did not diminish for Jews who came to believe and follow Jesus. Most early Christians realized Jesus as the Messiah was the one about whom David spoke about in Psalm 110. But there was still that lingering question, that reference to Melchizedek. What did it mean to speak of Jesus as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? This is the mystery. This is the mystery the writer of Hebrews seeks to solve. But now, having laid that foundation for you, what I also need to share with you is how the writer of Hebrews attempts to solve this mystery in what we just heard is different than we would expect as modern Western readers of the Bible. Because what the writer is doing here is a Jewish method of biblical interpretation known as midrash. Midrash. Midrash, first practiced by Jewish rabbis, is seeking to understand the revelation and meaning of God's word, not just in terms of what is explicitly said through the words of the text, but also through what is communicated behind the words, between the words, or what we might call reading between the lines. Reading between the lines is about noticing what is not being said, or rather, what is being communicated by not being directly spoken. You with me? Maybe not? Let me give you an example of reading between the lines. If a friend changes the subject when you attempt to talk to him or her about a recent fight you had, then you ought to read their non-response as communicating that he or she might not be ready to talk about it. Let me give you a better one. If you have a friend or if you're married, it doesn't matter, any relationship, and you come out with what you've decided to wear for the day and you go, how do I look? 
And the person says, ah, it's okay. It doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> Read between the lines. They're saying it's okay. They're not telling you, hey, you look great. So you better go change your clothes, right? <laughs> Reading between the lines. Midrash. What's left out of a conversation can be as important as what is included. Similarly, in biblical interpretation, Midrash operates out of making an argument from silence, making a conclusion based on what is not said as well as what is expressed. Now, I recognize that for some of us, this is new. Some of us, we've never, never even heard of this before. This may be an unfamiliar form of biblical interpretation, and therefore it might seem somehow suspect to us. And if that's the case for you, I want to also give you one more thing before we dive into the text. I want you to recognize that what I've just introduced to you is something Jesus does all the time in the Gospels. And I'm going to give you a quick example just to further help you to understand what's going on here. A, a sentence that we're all familiar with that Jesus said, something, a teaching that Jesus gave. Jesus declared, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But if we go back to the context in which Jesus said this, okay, and it's up on the screen, Jesus is reinterpreting the traditional understanding of the Sabbath by pointing to a story about David. Don't know if you remember this. David, Jesus recalls how David, out of hunger and need, ate the bread of presence, which only the priests could eat. That's all you need to know. This very special bread that only the priests could eat. David, in other words, does something that appears to break the law but from the silence of that encounter, the fact that David is not rebuked, David is not accused of wrongdoing, Jesus reveals a different way of understanding laws of God like the Sabbath. Reinterprets it from understanding laws of God like the Sabbath as rigid rules without any flexibility or accommodation to being rules of life given for the benefit of humanity and therefore adaptable in certain situations. This is exactly the same thing the writer in the letter to the Hebrews is doing here. The very same thing. So here we go. What we've just read, and we're going to talk about, more than investigating the historical Melchizedek, in using Genesis 14, the silence is there, the things unsaid, the mystery of Melchizedek, the writer is using that as a way of helping us to better understand the distinctiveness of Jesus' role as our great high priest. In other words, what follows isn't so much about solving who Melchizedek actually was as it is to make clear exactly who Jesus is. So, what do we learn from the passage, given all that, with that set up? Well, first, we learn that Melchizedek is observed to have been both a king and a priest, and that may not seem like a big deal. We could gloss over that very, very quickly, but not so fast. This is an unusual combination. Why? to be both a king and a priest because the law which was given to Moses on Mount Sinai centuries after this event in Genesis 14 established the priesthood and the kingship as two distinct, mutually exclusive offices of leadership in Israel. There was a clear division between the kings and the priests of Israel. Priests were strictly from the line of Levi. Kings were strictly from the line of Judah. Therefore, a king couldn't be a priest as well. You might remember when Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, attempted to blur the line between the kingship and the priesthood, and God was not pleased. 
It was one of the many reasons why Saul lost his crown as the king of Israel. Solomon, by the way, King Solomon fell into similar trouble during his tenure as well. But what's being pointed out here is Melchizedek was of a different order altogether, able to serve both as a king and as a priest. The author, in fact, specifically muses on what Melchizedek's name means. Melech in Hebrew means king, and Zedek in Hebrew means righteousness or justice. Therefore, he says Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. But he also notes that he's from Salem. Salem is what would be later known as Jerusalem, right? And that word, that variation, Salem, is a variation on the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace, Hence, he's not only the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. And this order is significant, by the way, that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and then the king of peace. A kingdom cannot have true peace in its kingdom. A king cannot have true peace in his kingdom unless both he and his kingdom are righteous. Sin brings discord and strife. Righteousness is the foundation for peace. Interestingly, not surprisingly, not coincidentally, Jesus is also known biblically as the king of righteousness. Christ not only imparts righteousness to others, to us, Christ is righteousness in his very being. For though, as we already talked about in Hebrews, for though Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, he never sinned. He could not, there no guilt could be found in him. Jesus is the king of righteousness, that he is righteousness, but also in that his reign is king, Jesus wages war against the unjust and the wicked. But Jesus is also biblically referred to as the king of peace. All that live under his lordship, to all that live under his lordship, Jesus brings peace. Peace between us and God, peace with ourselves, peace with each other. But Jesus doesn't lay aside his righteousness in order to bring us peace. His righteousness and his peace are inseparably wedded together. God in Christ brings peace by carrying the burden of our sin, the weight of human injustice, the full extent of evil that people do upon his righteousness. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, Jesus is both just and the justifier of all humanity. The point here is that Jesus, by his lineage in relationship to Israel, coming from the kingly tribe of Judah, and not the priestly tribe of Levi, could not be a priest according to the law. But like Melchizedek, Jesus isn't just any priest or any king. Being of a different order altogether, the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is both. He is the one who is both our king and our priest. For these two offices to be combined reveals the superiority of the work of Christ to the old, former way of doing things in Israel. That's the first point here. But the writer goes on to highlight the uniqueness of Melchizedek. He goes on by saying in the next slide, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The writer of Hebrews is picking up on something, the silence again, that the Bible does not record Melchizedek's genealogy at all. Therefore, we don't know from where he came from or who came from him. Now, again, this might seem like a big deal to us, but understand to the people to whom he's writing, if you know your Bible, 
This is everything. In the Levitical priesthood, this would be a problem to not have genealogy because your genealogy was everything. You go through Genesis. That's why you see those genealogies all over the place. You go through Exodus. Genealogy, genealogy. Where you came from was very, very important, but especially to the Levitical priesthood, okay? Being a priest in Israel, remember what I told you, was totally dependent on your family line. All priests came from the tribe of Levi. No one else need apply. If you could not establish your heritage... You were excluded from the priesthood. So from the silence of Genesis 14, which does not mention a priestly genealogy for Melchizedek, which does not mention when Melchizedek started or ended serving as a priest, the point is being made that Melchizedek is clearly an outlier, someone of an altogether different order. That one part, that one line, right? Having neither beginning of days or end, nor end of life seems to be saying Melchizedek is eternal. And there are people who get all kinds of whacked out crazy that Melchizedek was actually like a, a, a supernatural being or Melchizedek was Christ before Christ. It's not what, remember everything I've laid for you, a foundation I've laid for you. This is not what the author is at all trying to suggest. Not, the author is not trying to literally say that Melchizedek was eternal. This isn't a suggestion of immortality but rather, again, using the example of Melchizedek as a seemingly timeless, ongoing character, arguing from silence that the order of Melchizedek is like this permanent higher fixture, the writer is reinforcing the distinctiveness of Jesus as our great high priest. Jesus' priesthood, in other words, does not depend upon being born into a priestly family. Unlike the Levitical priests who always died and had to be replaced, Jesus' priesthood likewise continues uninterrupted because it is eternal. It's better. In the remainder of the passage, the writer offers two more observations. The first is Melchizedek is revealed to be greater than Abraham. Abraham, as we talked about earlier, is the patriarch of the entire nation of Israel, the father of God's promise of the blessing to all the nations of the world, Therefore, as the writer points out, for Abraham to be submissive to Melchizedek, to accept the blessing of Melchizedek, to give a tithe, a tenth to him, indicates Abraham's deference to Melchizedek. That Abraham recognizes Melchizedek's priesthood to be from God. Long, by the way, long before the priesthood is even established through Israel, through the line of Aaron, through the line of, Eve, of Levi. But wait, the writer goes on, there's more. And it's, I think at this point, the writer's being a little cute here, but let's go with it. If Abraham is representative of the entire nation of Israel, and if Abraham submitted to Melchizedek, then everyone flowing from the line of Abraham is also in subordination to Melchizedek. And that includes the Levitical priesthood. AKA, the order of Melchizedek is superior to the way of the Levitical priesthood, the way of Israel. Now, again, if your head is spinning, if you're like trying to hold this all together, just remember, the main point of this is really not all about Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is arguing from whatever we can piece together about Melchizedek or speculate about his origins, it's not about Melchizedek, but it's about the role that Melchizedek plays in helping us to understand the role that Jesus plays in our lives. And to be clear, because this could, you could easily go here, and I love how the writer doesn't let us, it's not that Melchizedek sets the pattern and Jesus follows it. Notice how the writer in verse 3 intentionally says, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, not the Son of God resembles Melchizedek. 
The record of, the, of Melchizedek, the author is implying, has been arranged by the Holy Spirit that it brings out certain truths. Certain truths that apply much more fully to Jesus than they ever did to Melchizedek. The point is quality seen in Melchizedek, righteousness, peace, timelessness of a better order, point forward to the role and nature of Jesus as our true, perpetual, eternal, great high priest. Wake up, he's done. Oh, great, okay, what? I love this. I could geek out on this. I could keep you here for like three hours and just be so excited while, and you would be asleep. And some of you have been. I'm looking out at you and I saw the glazed over look. I saw a couple of the elbows. Where is he going with this? That's, it's cool. Some of you are with me. Others of you are like, man, why did we come? It was raining. We came today. Why? Did we? Could have stayed home. We could have watched this. You know, we could have got like a burger or something while he was doing this part. So what? That's what you're asking. So what? I'll tell you what. What we believe about Jesus Christ makes a big difference. It's everything. If you want to take away, that's what you can take away from this conversation. What we believe about Jesus Christ makes a big difference. I've said it to you before, but let me set again the context of this letter. Keep in mind so you understand where I'm going here. Remember, under the continued threat of persecution, already having faced suffering and loss for following Jesus, the Jewish Christians to whom this letter was first written are being tempted to abandon their faith in Christ and return to Judaism. In the face of public pressure and out of a desire not to experience more hardship, they're trying to rationalize going back to what they knew. You know, the Jewish religion was a good system offering a solid moral foundation to raise our family by that showed us how we should live. I mean, these were the rituals we grew up with, right? I mean, that's kind of how we were raised and they seemed to work just fine then. Maybe we should just go back to the way things were. You know, it's just, it's, it's a t- t- challenging time, contested times. Maybe we should just go back to the way things were. You know, and hey, maybe we could just add Jesus. Jesus is cool. We like Jesus. Jesus is great. We don't got any problems with Jesus. Jesus is all right with us. Maybe we could just add Jesus to what we were believing and practicing before. This community was failing to grasp how Jesus is superior everything that came before and everything that will come next. They were struggling to understand, to accept that Jesus is simply the best. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they have been looking for. Think about it. The writer of Hebrews has just demonstrated how through Genesis 14, it's revealed that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And if David in Psalm 110 later prophesies that the Messiah will be after the order of Melchizedek, then it follows the Messiah is greater than Abraham, that Jesus is greater than Abraham. And let me tell you something, that's a statement, that's a revelation that would have hit home to any Jewish Christians hearing this message. If anyone can be greater than Abraham, Father Abraham, then perhaps Jesus' claims in the Gospel of John to be greater than all who came before him. Do you remember him saying that? 
Maybe the writer of Hebrews' thematic argument that Jesus is simply the best is not as audacious, not as exclusivist as it seems. Because what is being definitively communicated here, and you'll hear it repeated, is the old way of doing things. The law has been eclipsed, has been fulfilled by the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is no going back. There is no combining the old and the new. There is no Jesus added to something else. Anything else but Jesus is going back to something that has passed, something that has run its course, a way of living that is both inferior and ineffective. In other words, this community was being asked to answer once again what is the essential question of the Christian faith. It is the answer to the question first and forever spoken from Jesus' lips when he turned to the twelve as he turns to each and every person who encounters him, including us, and asks, who do you say that I am? If you were bored, wake up. Like the community to whom this letter was first written, what we believe about Jesus Christ makes a big difference. It is everything. This question has an objectively true answer. Our eternal destiny hinges on our response to that question. Who do you say that I am? What is your answer to that question? What is our answer to that question? This may all seem obvious, but let us be assured it is not. It is not a given, the answer to this question, as seen from the example of the community to whom this letter was first written. Have you noticed something? The writer is having to bend over backwards to continually say, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any human prophet. Jesus is better than any angel. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is now better than Abraham. What else you got? Who else are you going to bring up? Jesus is better. It is not obvious to this community. And it is not obvious to us that the answer to this question is perceived as debatable, contestable, is becoming increasingly evidenced by how professed faith in Jesus is being played out in public, even among the highest leaders in our land. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. To use the language of this letter, Jesus is the King of righteousness and our great high priest. Lots of people are just fine with half of who Jesus is. The priestly part, Jesus as our Savior. Many of us are perfectly willing to let Jesus intercede for us, Jesus to forgive us, even clean up our mess. Sure, Jesus can save us. We're fine with that. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. But Jesus reigning over us? Jesus not just as our Savior, but our Lord? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second, Come on. I mean, really? Who does Jesus is? Who does Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to tell me to love my enemies? Who is Jesus 
to tell me not to return an eye for an eye. Who is Jesus to tell me to forgive as I've been forgiven? Who is Jesus to tell me to bless those who persecute me? I don't agree with that. Who is Jesus to tell me to be merciful as God is merciful? Who is Jesus to tell me to care for the least of these? And who is Jesus to tell me not to announce, to boast and brag about my good deeds with trumpets, to not seek to be honored by others for all the good I do? Who does Jesus think he is? Does he think just because he saves me, he can tell me how to live my life? Yeah, exactly, he does. That's right. If Jesus is your savior, then Jesus is your Lord. If Jesus isn't your Lord, then I'm sorry, and I know this is gonna hurt, stop kidding yourself, then Jesus ain't your savior. We, we, we have more and more wanna try to separate these things. More and more, we wanna kinda go back to the life we knew. We wanna go, fine, totally fine, as if Jesus were some accessory we can add. I'll take the salvation part, I'll take the forgiveness. Eternal life sounds great, and I'm just gonna add that to the way I lived before, to the way I thought before, the way I spoke before, to the way I acted and, and practiced before, so I can do my marriage differently than how I believe in Jesus. I can operate my business differently than how I believe in Jesus. I can... You add to it, whatever it is, but there's some kind of this separation of there's Jesus over here and then there's everything else. When we make Jesus to be less than he is, all that Christ reveals himself to be, when what Jesus said, taught, modeled, and commanded us, when how Jesus has empowered us through the Holy Spirit to live becomes optional, when it's convenient, when it's expedient or only applicable when I decide to agree with Jesus, then Jesus is not our Lord. And if Jesus is not just our Savior, but our Lord, then what Jesus specifically, clearly, and unequivocally told us and showed us and empowered us to do, not just believing in grace, but living graciously day by day. Not just talking about love, but practically, tangibly loving each other. Not claiming any right to vengeance, but peacefully protesting even as we trust God to reconcile all that is wrong. If Jesus is not just our Savior, but our Lord, then what Jesus clearly, specifically, and unequivocally told us, showed us, and empowered us to do are non-negotiable non-negotiable. If Jesus is not just our Savior, but our Lord, if Jesus is our great high priest and our King of kings, if he is the lion and the lamb, as we just were singing a few minutes ago, then no one, no one can opt out of following his way, representing the truth that he is and or abiding in the everlasting life he extends to us. And if this sounds exclusionary. If this sounds too much, don't push back on me, push back on him. C.S. Lewis said it best. Many of you know this already. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. There's no other option. You can't just say, I'll take the Savior part, but not the Lordship part. They're inseparable from each other, but we continue to live in a world where we're starting to talk and act and where others around us are doing it and we're totally okay with it that somehow these two things are separate from each other. 
And what I'm telling you, wake up, all of us, wake up personally, wake up communally, wake up in the world. We are, when the minute we head down that road, the minute we sacrifice Jesus as Savior and Lord, the minute we compromise that, honoring, respecting, and following Jesus above all others, if that's negotiable in any way for us as Christians, then we need to recognize we may think we know who Jesus is, but we definitely aren't following him. If Jesus is able to be co-opted or compromised by our preferences, our politics, life's pressures, or anything else rivaling for our attention and allegiance, then Jesus might be our friend. Jesus might be our inspiration. Jesus might be our role model, but Jesus isn't our king. Jesus isn't our great high priest. And don't get me wrong, Jesus wants to be your friend. Jesus wants to be your inspiration. Jesus wants to be your role model. But none of that comes at the exclusion of being your high priest and your king. Why? Why, why can't we have it the way we want it? Why can't we just have Jesus one way and not all the way? Because when we do that, we're not embracing Jesus on his terms. We're trying to fit Jesus into our terms. And the problem is when you don't embrace Jesus on his terms, you try to fit him into your terms, you're not going to end up following Jesus because you're going to be too busy going your own way. Beloved, Christ doesn't just want to do a good work in you or a good work for you. Jesus seeks to do a good work through you. And none of that work can happen unless Jesus doesn't just save us, but Christ reigns in and through us. Because, you see, when we perceive and we embrace Jesus as our king of righteousness, as our prince of peace, we open ourselves up. We open ourselves up through the spirit of Christ to being grown and living rightly. We open ourselves up to learning how to make and share peace with others. You know this. This is true for me, and it's not just me. Peace doesn't come easy to us. I'm much easier at conflict. I can pick a fight with anybody. I can get started giving you ranting and raving. It doesn't take much. Get me going. <laughs> Making peace. Can we all just get along? Can we reconcile here? That is not my first inclination. And even when I want to make peace, I struggle. Just play a game of Monopoly with me and I'm losing, man. <laughs> not trying to make fun, but that's my point. Peace does not come easy to us, but when we open ourselves up to the kingship, the lordship, of Christ, as well as the priestly character of Christ, Jesus grows us. Jesus changes us. Jesus does that work of teaching us to make peace and to share peace. The reason why you don't want to partition anything off, your marriage, your job, how you run your business, your relation, any relationship, is because when you separate that from the kingship of Jesus, the priestly, priestly aspect of Jesus, that is not able to be touched by Jesus. You want your marriage to get better? You want your job to get better? You want your business to get better? And by better, I'm not talking prosperity. I'm not talking, you know, awesome. I'm talking about healthier, deeper, richer, authentic, holistic, whole. You want that in your life? Then everything in your life you have to lay before the feet of Jesus. And understand that anything that you're not willing to lay before the feet of Jesus, you are trying to deal with on your own. And I don't know, maybe you're better than me. You might be. Good luck with that. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. 
And it's when we embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as our King and as our priest, that we follow him. And here's the thing. Following Jesus is not about perfection. It's not about perfection. Following Jesus is about direction. It's not about being perfect, but following Jesus is about offering our lives every day as living sacrifices to our great high priest. Following Jesus is seeking in everything we say and do to bring glory and honor to our king. Because when we offer our allegiance and our obedience, when we give our submission and our service to Jesus, we are made perfect. Not immediately, maybe not until we meet him again on the other side of this life, but we are, we are in the process of being made perfect. We are joining, we are aligning ourselves with an altogether different order. His way, his truth, his life. So you see, what at first glance reads like some technical, bizarre, perhaps even irrelevant discussion about some obscure figure from centuries ago named Melchizedek is in fact the gateway for us to fully appreciate who Jesus is, what Christ has done, and what God in Christ continues to do. We're just getting started with where the author of this letter is about to go. But we've taken our first step, the first step of faith, And that first step of faith forward is always the same. It's each and every day facing that question and recognizing and answering it that Jesus is of an altogether different order from any and every other path of spiritual enlightenment, from any and every other way of salvation, from any and every other means of human flourishing. Jesus is simply the best. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything good and right that we are looking for. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything good and right that creation, all creation needs. And Jesus is the best forever and ever and ever. Amen.